lives are from beginning to end, we who know you, covered by grace, grace granted to us as your word tells us, not by works of our own, but according to your eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. And we realize that our coming to understand your glory and come to faith in Christ through your word, as we read in First Peter, is because of your work. It is because of your spirit. It is by that word we were born again as the Spirit awakened our eyes to its truth, to the Christ revealed in it, and gave us the gift of faith and repentance. It is by grace we are sustained and upheld. It is by grace we are delivered to our heavenly home, and it is by grace that we will stand in your presence blameless with great joy. It is indeed all of grace. And it is grace that empowers us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It is grace that empowers us to have hope in the midst of a decaying and dying world. It is grace that gives us confidence that all you have promised for us in Christ, as we said earlier, is yes and amen. And so help us to be strong in grace, to walk in grace, and to live our lives as trophies of grace, all to the glory of the one in whom that grace is bound, the accomplishments of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, as we uh, come to Revelation chapter 5, or before we get there, I want to say, of course, Happy Mother's Day to our mothers who are able to be here this morning. I know some were not able to be here, but for those who are here, Happy happy Mother's Day to you. This is... Um, of course, a day that uh, was not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not in the Bible, uh, but motherhood is in the Bible, and motherhood is something we should celebrate is in the Bible, and so to that end, we do want to honor our mothers and the great blessing that God has given to women to bear children, to raise them, to establish a home of joy and truth, and to influence children for the next generation, and in a unique way that only a mom can do that. And so we praise God for our moms, and we pray God for the gift of our mothers. With that being said, let's turn now to uh, Revelation 5, if you're not there, as we come into the second part of this great vision that God has given to us through the Apostle John, this great vision of the throne room of God. This great vision of the throne room of God that will establish the foundation out of which everything to unfold after this vision is grounded in, namely the authority and the glory of God who is creator and redeemer of all things. We are going to break this passage up into two main sections. And that is the first section, the worthiness of Christ, and the second section, the worship of all creation. So the worthiness of Christ and the worship of all creation. We're going to look at the first part this morning. And just to let you know where we're going to go over the next few weeks, we'll look at the worthiness of Christ this morning, the worship of Christ next week. And then we're going to take a week just to consider the foundation and basic principles of worship within the church, of worship within the church that flow out of this passage Uh, and all of Scripture. So that's where we're going with it. Let's begin this morning by reading all of Revelation chapter 5 so we get the sense of its context in its entirety and then we'll swing back around and consider the first several verses this morning. Remember, this is a continuation of the vision that began in chapter 4 that ended with the worship of God, the Father as Creator, the one who sits on the throne and by whom all things were created. 
The vision then turns to this in chapter 5. And I saw at the right, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And that is the conclusion of the vision that God wants to give to us as his church. Of the glories that are in heaven. And the divine authority and power and majesty that will accomplish his will in earth. Let's go back to verse 1 and note the worthiness of Christ, the worthiness of Christ. And so he begins this new phase of the vision with that familiar phrase, I saw, I saw. He's now turning his attention to a new movement in these unfolding events before his mind's eye and before his, all of his senses with the sights of the throne, before him the sea, the colors, the heavenly beings, the flashing lightning, the senses of the deep and continuous thunder that is emanating from the throne in the middle of this glorious vision, the sounds of worship of the four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down before the throne. His attention is now drawn again in verse 1 at first to the, to the right hand of him who sat on the throne, who is sitting on the throne. And yet now it's not only the one who is sitting on the throne, but it is particularly what is in the hands of him who is sitting on the throne, namely a book or a scroll, probably better translated. And this scroll then forms the centrality of the vision. This scroll is the central object on which the eyes of John and all of those in this vision are focused at first. The scroll is an object of great importance 
the central object of concern. And notice first where this scroll is located. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. It is in the hand, it is in the possession of God the Father. Of him who sits on the throne, it is in his right hand which communicates a right of possession and of ownership. And in fact, that indeed fits with what was just said of God, that he is the creator of all things. It is by his will that all things exist, all things are from him, all things are for him, all things are ordered to his purposes and to his glory. It is yet another way that John is establishing, as he is throughout the entire vision, the absolute sovereignty and authority of God to rule over creation and to accomplish his will. And so he's looking at him who sits on the throne, but particularly this scroll that he holds in his hand. What is the identity of this scroll? He says here it is a scroll or a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. It's written on the inside and on the back. That is the first thing that he notices. Not to get too lost in particulars here, but but part of the, the way that he would have been envisioning this is the way that they wrote things down in those times, which was most likely a papyrus document. It was where they laid reeds of a papyrus plant and they were thinly cut. They were laid vertical and horizontal and then they were glued together and written on. What is interesting about this imagery here is that usually uh, that was written, those kind of scrolls were written on one side. This is written on the back and before. That wasn't uncommon in certain kind of documents and certainly because it was expensive and they didn't want to waste any of it. But here it goes far beyond the idea of not wanting to waste. It was written on the inside and the back to communicate the comprehensive nature of what it contains. There is a fullness to what is written in this scroll, a fullness of the plans of God and the purposes of God yet to be revealed. It shows the comprehensive plan of God in his final stages for creation. And in fact, this is not the first time this imagery has been used in a significant prophetic word. As we noted last week, just very briefly, that the imagery here in much of this throne room vision is drawn from the vision given to the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. The vision of the war chariot of God, the vision of God as he is coming to bring judgment upon his people to remove his glory and to Replace it with his wrath for their sin. As a part of this call, moving into chapter 2, Ezekiel also sees a book and he says in verse 8, God does to the prophet, Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving to you. In other words, fully absorb this message. Take it within yourself. Own it. And then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And when he had spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. It was a book to prepare the prophet for the judgments that were to come upon the nation. Now, here there is a distinction This book is not being extended to the prophet by the hand of God, as it were, and his emissary. Rather, it is a book that is in the hand of the Father. It is a book that is sealed up. It is a book that is closed. 
It is a book that needs a worthy one to come and take it. Now again, what book is this? Now there's been a lot of suggestions. We're not going to spend our time on them. It's been suggested to be a title deed to all of the earth, a, a picture of the covenant that is uh, accomplished by Christ and to be unveiled, a picture of a will and a testament, a legal document in general. Some even suggest a book of life. There's a lot of suggestions as to the precise identity of this book. Most likely it is some kind of title deed, either a title deed to the earth or some kind of legal document. There's a historical precedent for that. Again, we're not going to get into all of that. A precise correlation is not the main point. The main point is this, that the scroll contains not just information, but decrees that are necessary to bring about God's will upon the earth. It is most precisely some idea of ownership and a possession and therefore connecting to the idea of a title deed and ownership. But the main idea is that what is contained in this book is the unleashing of God's will for the end of the age, for God's purposes to be fulfilled, for the completion of his promises. I think that's captured pretty well in a couple of statements. Uh, Let me just read them to you. One said this, The scroll represents the divine plan for redemption and restoration through Christ. Another, this symbolizes God's salvific plan to assert his sovereignty over a rebellious world and to achieve his loving purposes and creation through the victory of the Lamb. And that is the main idea. That's the purpose of the scroll. That's the purpose of its need to be opened. Its scroll establishes ownership and rule. Its contents supply the unfolding purposes for God in bringing the kingdom of Christ and his kingdom upon the earth, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of judgment, and a kingdom of salvation. All of that depends on the contents of this book and not merely on the contents of this book, but the ability for the contents of this book to be opened and enacted upon the earth. Notice then the significance of what he says at the end. It's the throne of the book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And the idea here is then, it is at this point in the vision inaccessible. It's unaccessible. John can't open it. The angels can't open it. It is a closed book. It is a book that is sealed up. Now there is... Some suggest a connection here with Isaiah 29, 11, where the book is sealed up, that imagery of a sealed up book. But there it relates primarily to the sinful condition of the nation, nation who cannot understand the word of God. There's a closer connection to Daniel chapter 12, when this great prophet is given words of the future, both in the immediate future of nations that are to rise and to fall, and in the ultimate future, looking to the end of the age of God's purposes for his people. But he says at the end of this book, in chapter 12, verse 4, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. He says later, after a comment of things related to the end of the time of God's plan for Israel, in verse 8, As for me, I heard, but I could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up to the end of time. It is the purposes of God that were not ready to be revealed in all of their fullness 
even to Daniel. There were some things revealed. There was a big picture revealed. But it was not yet to be revealed the details of how this would be accomplished, the way that God would accomplish it, and when God would accomplish it. This was ready to be revealed in a future time. In a future time. And so it is here. There is a book that is sealed up. It's information yet to be revealed to man until one was ready to, or one who was found, who could open these seals. And so again, he says in verse 2, using this familiar language, and I saw, again, his gaze, gaze is turning to the events before him. And what did he see? He says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? This is a new angel that has not been introduced yet in this vision. He's described as a strong angel, speaking with a loud voice, proclaiming the question that forms the heart and the essence of the issue. That he wants to bring the attention of all, of John and all of heaven, and us who are its readers, that he wants to bring to our attention. And that is, who is worthy to open the book and to loosen its seals? The core issue then, who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who's worthy to look inside? What does he mean by that? Well, the idea of that term itself is somebody that's, the idea of worthy is the idea of what is of worth or valuable. What has a high degree of worth or value. It has the idea of what is corresponding to or fitting or appropriate or worthy of deserving. So to illustrate that, just in John, positively, it has the sense Jesus said to those who were in the church in chapter 3 of Sardis. He said because of their suffering, they are worthy to walk with him in white. In other words, they are because of their faithfulness, because of their willingness to suffer for Christ, they are shown to be commensurate with the blessing to walk with him in white of his salvation. They have walked worthy of the salvation that they have received. That's a positive sense. Negatively, It speaks of those who are worthy, who are deserving of judgment for their disobedience, for their unbelief. And so he says in verse 16 or 6 of chapter 6 of the wicked, they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Let's term there as worthy. They are worthy of the judgment. They have earned it. They have brought this upon themselves. They are commensurate with the punishment. Their lives are commensurate with the punishment that will come upon them. Here he says, who is worthy? Who is able? Who has within themselves the credentials and the ability and the accomplishments then to open this book and to break its seals? In other words, it also means that The book cannot be opened without one who is worthy to be found. The book is not opened. The implication is is that there's no reclaiming of God's rule on earth. There's no fulfillment of his purpose. In other words, without one to open the book, if one not found worthy, then there is no hope then for the accomplishment of God's plans. There is no hope for the fulfillment of the promise. 
There is no hope for his glory among the nations. There would be no hope for his justice and righteousness upon the earth. It's all dependent upon one being found who is worthy. Who is worthy. Who meets the qualifications. And what's shocking then about that in verse 3 is that no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Key phrase there is no one was able. No one was worthy. In short, all of creation, all of the heavenly world was searched and evaluated and could produce nothing and no one who was worthy to look into the book and bring about God's rule upon the earth. There was no holy angel. There was no unfallen created creature that was worthy to look into the book. The imagery there is meant to show comprehensiveness. No one in heaven, no one on the earth, no one under the earth, even among unfallen angels, even of the glory of those who are around the throne and the four living creatures, And the 24 elders, none was found that was worthy to open the book. That is an utterly humbling statement. If there's one thing man likes to think of is himself as worthy. He says there is none worthy. And so John is stung by this. And the realization of this overwhelms him. And so what does he say in verse 4? Realizing the gravity of the situation which God himself has created, attention that God has made to make the point, no one is worthy. John then in verse 4 says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or the scroll or to look into it. He was emotionally devastated. Why? Well, obviously. He understands that in this book is everything essential to the accomplishments of God's plans, of justice and righteousness, to everything that he had his hope in, to God's glory being manifest on the earth, and no one can look into the book. No one is worthy. And so he's devastated. He's overwhelmed. He begins weeping greatly. You know, one commented that captured an idea of this It says how futile and meaningless all of history ultimately is apart from Christ. How futile and meaningless ultimately all of history is apart from Christ. Apart from Christ there is no hope for humanity. There is no hope for justice. There is no hope for meaning. All the purposes of creation, existence, and reality are bound in finding this worthy one who is to be identified. That's humbling as well. And so look at verse 5. Being struck with this, he says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and and its seven seals. So he gives John a word of instruction. A word of instruction and a word of hope in this. The word of instruction is this. Stop weeping. It's somewhat of a rebuke, actually. It's somewhat of an indictment of John and the littleness of his understanding of who it is that sits on the throne and all the promises that were given. God has not failed to provide for the fulfillment of his plans and the display of his glory among creation. 
The kind of sadness that John was displaying here was the kind of sadness that has a mixture of hopelessness, a mixture of no answer, of defeat, as it were, of an impossibility to bring about the thing that God has indeed created everything to bring about. And so there's a sense of rebuke here because it had within it a sense of hopelessness. It's not always a rebuke. Jesus used this language a couple of times that are worth noting in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 7, there was a woman who lost her son and he was being carried out of the city. And he comes up to the woman and he says, stop weeping. And then in compassion, he restores the child to life and gives him back to her mother. And a synagogue official in Luke 8, he entered into a house where they were all weeping because his daughter had just died and he told them stop weeping just before he raised her to life. Now this kind of sadness is understandable at some level, but it has been noted, and I think rightly so, this has been noted, and it's a quote, human grief often springs from insufficient knowledge. If we had patience to wait and trust, we would see that God has his own solution for the situations which bring us to tears. So John's weeping was understandable, but it was unnecessary. It was understandable, but it was unnecessary. It was not needful. And I would ask this, how much of our weeping and concerns and anxiety and sadness is very often the same? We need to look to and wait on God to provide. How much of us is it just because we lack hope, because we lack knowing the one who sits on the throne and who is ordering our lives for his own glory and for our good, who is accomplishing his purposes? In fact, what does the elder do in response to John's weeping? He points him to Christ, who Christ is, what Christ has done, who God is for us in Christ. And this is instructive, and I just want to make this as a footnote. Our spiritual strength, stability, joy is directly related to our knowledge of who God is, both our knowledge in terms of what we know of Him intellectually, but our knowledge spiritually and what we apprehend of Him in our hearts, what we truly believe to be true about Him in the depth of who we are. Much spiritual weakness is tied to a weak and low knowledge of God. That's why a deep knowledge of the word and of doctrine is essential to sanctification to a healthy Christian life. This is where Peter was getting in 1 Peter. What does he do? How often do we give empty comforts when there are pain and suffering and doubt and discouragement in the world when in fact what we need to do is get our eyes off of the world, off of the circumstances and get them back onto Christ and who he is. If you'll notice, that's the pattern through all of scripture. When they were to be, when David was afraid, what does he say? He looks to God in whom is his refuge. He doesn't put his trust in horses. He doesn't put his trust in man. He puts his trust in God. When there is a concern about the future where do they look they look under the hills where does my help come from it comes from the Lord that is our hope Christ is our hope a Christian should not be walking around discouraged depressed and anxious all the time it's a conflict of the reality of faith and who God is for his people and that's at least suggested here why are you weeping the sovereign God who made all things and is creator, 
The sovereign God who rules all things, will he not provide one who is worthy? So it's first a word of instruction, but it's also a word of hope. Look what he says. He says there is one who has overcome. Who is this one who has overcome? The one who is from the tribe of Judah, the one who is from the root of David. He is able to open the scroll. He is able to break the seals. Him who is the rightful heir of all things. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Tim mentioned this not long ago very helpfully as he's taken us through Genesis chapter 49. And the prophecy there of Joseph and the promises that were to come. The imagery here is of power, of dignity, of strength, of fierceness to overcome enemies. The roar of the lion is what commands fear on the plains and all who are within its hearing. Interestingly, it's that very image used of the mighty sound of an angel who cried out with a loud voice in 10.3. As when a lion roars, everybody hears it and they listen. Here he is, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the promised one. Now what's interesting, one thing that's interesting, is this term, this imagery of a lion is used in Revelation uh, most often in relation to the kingdom of the Antichrist. He wants to present himself as a lion, as the fierce one. It's used of the demonic beings who will be used to torment. It says of nine, chapter 9, verse 8, they had teeth like the teeth of lions. In verse 17, speaking of the number of those raised up against God that they had, they were like lions. They were the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. In chapter thirteen, two of the kingdom of the Antichrist, one of his heads was, or he had the mouth of a lion. Satan likes to portray strength and authority and power and fierceness, but there's only one who is the lion of Judah, and he is the one who will conquer. He is the one whose the fierceness of his wrath and of his power and his strength will overcome his enemies. He is the root of David. The root of David, the promised ruler of the Davidic covenant. We won't go there, but I will remind you of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is the promise that God made to David that one from you will sit on the throne and will rule forever. His kingdom will never end. It is the one promised throughout the old covenant that they were anticipating. Just to remind you of it, most direct connection is in Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is the one who will come, who will bring about the purposes of God for his people. He is the son of David, as he was often exclaimed as being during his ministry. Have mercy on us, son of David. He was the son of David, and therefore it was crucial that that was included in the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. In the narratives of his birth, he was the son of David who was coming to rightfully claim the throne which is his. Luke chapter 1. He will be great, the angel told Mary. He will be great, the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
In Zechariah's prophecy, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Here is that promised David in his glorious presence in heaven, who is the one who is able to open the scroll. And he has overcome. He has overcome. Indeed, that is the glorious fulfillment of the promise, the very last words of Scripture nearly. In verse 16, Jesus says, I've sent my angel to testify to these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. John, don't you know that God made a promise and that God would fulfill it? Don't you know that there is a ruler that God has provided? The one that your people have hoped in? The one who came? The one who died? The one who rose? And now the apostle's gaze is fixed upon him who will claim what is his and what was promised. And what is the first thing? So he he heard that from the elder. So the elder informed him first of the identity of this one. He is from the, the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is from the root of David. But now it turns from what John had heard, what the elder was telling him, to as he turns his gaze to actually see this one and his eyes are fixed on a different image. What does he see in verse 6? When he turns, he looks and he says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, what? A lamb. A lamb. A lamb standing. A lamb standing as a slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. Notice his position. It is in the midst of the throne. It highlights his nearness to the Father. And as it unfolds, the sharing of his glory with him who sits on the throne. He was, of course, at the throne before, but now the vision shifts its gaze from the one who sits on the throne to him who is now standing and ready to take the scroll. He will step forward and claim what is his. He says he's a land standing as if slain. Now this change of imagery is dramatic. It's dramatic. Going from hearing of one who is fierce in his power to overcome his enemies, one who is of the royal line of David, who will rule over a kingdom, one who is the promised one and the Messiah and the Lord is now before his eyes as a lamb who was slain. Clearly this is vision. He doesn't actually look like that when in heaven, but he's communicating. This is the vision of him to make a point that he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals because he is the promised king and ruler, but he is also the one who was the sacrifice for his people. It's this picture of strength and royalty mixed with meekness and suffering that is unique to the revelation of the God-man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses dramatic language here. He says he was standing as if slain. This word for slain here is is quite graphic. It has the idea of violent and merciless slaughter. It, It often is used in case to speak of violent murder, both in, well, throughout its use. A violent murder of slaughtering animals and sacrifices. Interestingly, John 
is the only one who uses this. And he uses it in 5.12, 1 John 5.12. And he speaks of Cain's murder of his brother Abel using the same term. Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother when he rose up and slew him. And he uses it eight times in Revelation to speak of those who were slain in war in chapter 6. The martyrs who were violently slain for their testimony in Christ. Speaks of a violent death. Interestingly, it's used of one of the heads of the beast in chapter 13, 3. But mostly of Christ who was slain for his people here in this imagery of the lamb who was standing next to the throne. This post might likely meant to conjure up both the imagery of the Passover lamb as well as the atoning slaughter of Israel's mediator in Isaiah 53, 7. It captures all of these things and really... It captures all of the testimony and the pictures and the anticipations of one who would come to atone for the sin of his people. Isaiah 53, 7, just to remind you, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter to have its throat cut and its blood spilled and to be offered up. Like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. A picture of meekness and obedience, of sacrifice, of suffering. Here it is the picture of the one who by his violent death, his atoning death, was obedient to the Father. Victorious over sin, victorious over Satan, victorious over death. It's the picture of Christ as the Lamb is the statement of his suffering that he underwent for his people to redeem them. But also what he underwent to rule them and to rule over creation. So it's an incredible combination of that reality. That is the person of Christ, this divine glory of the eternal Son, this divine glory of the King, this divine glory of the ruler, this, divine, this picture of the divine glory of the divine warrior who will trample over his enemies who is a lamb. And what's fascinating about this picture here particularly is that this imagery of the Lamb is what dominates the picture of Christ throughout the book of Revelation. It's used 28 times in the book of Revelation. Of all of the ways that could, the conquering king and the coming king could be pictured, this is the imagery that God has chosen for us to set forth the Lamb. It's the imagery of the Lamb that stands at the head of Him as King, as King of the nations in chapter 15.3. We won't look at all these. He is the lamb who timberly shepherds and cares for his people, who proved to be his people by suffering for him in chapter 7. Who are these people in the great multitude? Those from every nation, tribe, tongue, standing before the throne, before the lamb. He is the one who shepherds them, who loves them, who cares for them. The one who is receiving the worship of them. He is the one they follow wherever he goes. In chapter 14, 4. Those who have not been defiled with women, they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from men as the first fruits to God and to the lamb. He is the lamb who will be the everlasting light and joy of his people in the new heavens and the new earth. In chapter 21. But here's what I want to highlight. Most strikingly is this. Those are glorious truths we'll get back to next week. But the most striking imagery that, that I would emphasize 
is that this lamb slanting is, yes, the one who was slaughtered for his people, the one who by virtue of his death, his atoning death, his, his substitutionary death, his propitiatory death and sacrifice, is also the lamb who breaks the seven seals of judgment. He is the lamb who breaks the seven seals of judgment that will then unfold throughout the rest of Revelation. He is the lamb from whose wrath men hide. Chapter 6, verse 16. Fall on us, they said. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Of the lamb. He is the lamb who overcomes his enemies in chapter 17, 14. He is the lamb in whose presence the wicked will endure their punishment. He is the lamb. In verse 10 of chapter 14, he will also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels, and in the presence of who? The lamb. The lamb as if slain. The lamb slaughtered. He is the one who will bring about the justice of the wicked. And let me make this suggestion. It is at this point that much of evangelicalism fails. It's at this point that much of the proclamation of Christ fails. Christ is so often held out as the meek and sacrificial lamb, the coming king to bring salvation, the gentle shepherd whose everlasting love upholds his people. But these, the problem is these are glorious truths, but they are the only truths, the sole themes of much Christian evangelism, ministry, and music. Contemporary music anyway. The problem is that this is only part of the picture. He's rarely proclaimed as the lamb who executes the wrath of God on the wicked, who will judge the living and the dead in relation to their response to him. He's rarely declared as that kind of lamb. And it is a lack of understanding the fullness of Christ that leads then many churches to so easily cave and conform to culture in the name of love and understanding. Christ is so gentle. He's so accepting that we can also accept those who utterly rebel against him and reject him and his glory and creation of sexuality, of race and humanity, of justice and righteousness and truth. If we don't have a full picture of him, then compromising with sin and those very things that Christ hates and will judge becomes then easy for the people of God. Sexual ideologies, critical theory, ungodly definitions of equality and inclusion. In the name of love and the sweetness and the gentleness then of the Lamb, these things will be compromised with rather than being called to repentance. He is the Lamb who was standing, who was slain for His people, who gave His life, but that Lamb slain is also the King who is God, who is holy, who is the judge of all the earth. There may also be a sense here in which this predominant imagery of Christ as the Lamb is a reminder to us and to His people that He conquered through suffering. He conquered through suffering and death. So His people who follow Him will overcome in Him through persevering, ready to suffer for our testimony of Him because of obedience to Him to share in His life and in His victory. 
And there is a picture that we follow the lamb. Who is the lamb? The lamb who went before us. We suffer for the lamb. Who is the lamb? The one who suffered for us and who overcame. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And it is the Lamb who has accomplished that glory for us. More than a Lamb, though, this Lamb is described in the most amazing terms. Verse 6, the second part. He is a Lamb standing. And the language there meant to communicate is likely the fact that He is the lamb standing in the continual fruit of the accomplishment of his work and therefore now able to claim what is his. And how has he pictured this lamb? As having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven horns, a horn, common imagery through scripture. You might be familiar with it. It speaks of Strength, authority, power. It was used of Joseph, for example, just to kind of give you an idea of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17, it says, As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. And with them he will Push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. In other words, he will be unstoppable because of his authority and power given to him by God. Those who are the ten thousands of Ephraim and those who are the thousands of Manasseh. There's many other references. The horn, the idea is that it is a picture of strength, of authority. And here he has seven horns, which is to be a picture then of his comprehensive, omnipotent power to rule. It is unassailable power. And again, it is a power that Satan seeks to emulate and to take for himself, but his will fall. Satan is often pictured in his earthly kingdom with horns as well. The authority of ungodly kingdoms are pictured with horns. I won't take you through every reference, but again, just listen to the rise of this beast. I saw the beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And here is the one, then, who wants to bump chest and authority with the risen Christ and says, I want what is yours. It is the false kingdom of the Antichrist. It is the kingdom in rebellion to God and to the Lamb and to Christ. But he alone possesses all power. And that is the idea here. He has seven horns, which means that he has the full strength of God to rule over all that is his. And nothing can challenge him. Nothing can threaten him. Nothing can in any way weaken his strength. He will accomplish purposes. He also has uh, here seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. The imagery again is drawn from Zechariah chapter 4. It is his omniscient glory and union with the Holy Spirit, the risen Christ, the incarnate Son, the exalted Son in union with the Holy Spirit. 
It is the part, again, of His divine glory as the Son. It was hinted at, this unique God-man nature of Christ in the Gospels, when it says in John 3 that He had the Spirit without measure. He had the Spirit without measure. Here is the full sense of that in its exalted state, in his exalted state at the right hand of the Father as the exalted incarnate Son is that he is here in this perfect union with the Spirit such that the eyes that are his are the eyes of the possession of the Spirit of God with whom he is also one and his purposes will be accomplished It is the Spirit who was the presence of Christ in His people, you remember that He promised in John 14. It is the Spirit who was the power of Christ for witness in John 15, 26. It is the Spirit who was the power of Christ witness in conviction and in judgment in John 16. It is the Spirit who is the power of the witness in His people in Acts 1, 8. Wait until you receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other utter ends of the earth. This is symbolic language to show that he is one with the Spirit and the Spirit will be the empowerment and the accomplisher of his purposes and even now is in strengthening his people. So he is the Spirit, he says here, he was sent out into all of the earth to do what? To accomplish the purposes of God in Christ. And this is the triune glory of God on display. The Father by whom creation was planned and came into being, who has all authority, shares this authority with the Son through whom all things were made and were redeemed by him and for him to rule. And the Spirit through whom all things came into being by His power who executes the will of God by the breath of God, all of the heavens were made. Here they are in triune glory. The Father sitting on the throne in glory as Creator by whose will all things exist. The glory of the Son through whom all things exist and for whom all things exist now claiming that right. And the Spirit of God who is the power of God to accomplish all of these things and strengthen and uphold His people to remain and persevere to the end. It's the triune glory of God. And so what does he say? This was the one who came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Again, it is now to claim what is his, all that he has gained. There was only one worthy in all of heaven and of earth. There is only one. And it is this lamb. It is the lion from the tribe of Judah The root of David, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the central point in this opening section and in light of these realities is this. There is only one who is worthy to rule as king over all of the earth and the universe. There is only one who can be the hope of his people, the joy of his people, and the trust of his people. And therefore there is only one who is to receive our worship, and that is Jesus Christ. 
He is the only hope of humanity, the certain hope and trust and glory of his people, and the only one worthy to take the scroll and to reign and to receive our worship and obedience and trust. When we would think that things look hopeless, where do we look? To the Lamb standing at the right hand of the throne who is coming to accomplish his purpose and to establish his kingdom. It's the worthiness of Christ. He's the only one worthy of our attention and our trust. And he is the only one worthy for us to acknowledge as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and for us to follow with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's the one we worship in the table. As we prepare next week to see and understand the worship that is ascribed to him by all of the angels in creation. But now we worship him in remembering his sacrifice and remembering that very kingdom that he purchased for us in these elements and the bread and the juice. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and prepare our hearts then to receive them. Father, thank you for giving us a savior. Thank you for accomplishing as you necessarily would do for you are God who cannot lie. And so when you made a promise that you would crush Satan on the head, when you made a promise to Abraham that through him all of the nations would be blessed, when you made a promise to David that one would sit on his throne, when you made a promise to Israel that one would come to be a sacrifice for sin, when you make a promise to us that one is coming to reclaim all that has been purchased by him, we can have a certain hope. And that hope is embodied in your word, That hope is pictured by your own design in the elements of this table. As we worship through our faith and our trust and in obedience to this very ordinance. The one who has come and purchased for God a kingdom. Has purchased for us a hope and a salvation that is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for us who are protected by your power to endure to the end. Strengthen our hearts, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.